Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join the Messiah Lutheran Church Bible Study Class, led by Pastor Jim Audie. This week, we conclude our series in the book of Matthew, titled Living the Life of the Beloved and the Belonged. Enjoy. Okay, we're good to go. All right, so... We're going to, did you finish the lesson last week? You actually did. Holy cow. That's amazing. <laughs> All right. So uh, what we're going to, the goal for today is to finish the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. So I know that previously I had said that uh, the one week wonders would start today, but actually they're going to start next week, provided that we finish this lesson today. All right. And I'm confident that we'll be able to do that. So we're going to start in uh, Matthew, again, 7, 13 to 14. But before we do that, just some sort of touching base with some of the things that uh, we talked about or you guys talked about while I was away for the last uh, two weeks. So last week, um, well, you looked at uh, Jesus's words regarding judging. Remember that in Matthew 7, he talks about judge not lest he be judged. And then he says, the measure that you give in judging other people is the same measure that you're going to receive. And it kind of sounds a little contradictory because on the one hand, he says, don't do it. And then he says, but if you do it, make sure that you're uh, sort of taking, uh, being aware of the manner in which you do it or the way that you do it, because you have to be prepared for the possibility that if you do do it with somebody else, then it's likely that uh, that's going to come back to you in some form or another. And then he goes into this idea of looking, if you are going to, to be involved in this, then you need to be looking at the speck in your own eye. Uh, no, how, am I getting that wrong? It's the plank, right? The plank in your own eye, uh, if you're going to be so preoccupied with the speck in the brother's eye. And so then what's the point of all of that? Why, what's his point in saying all that about this speck and this plank thing? What's the point? You need to be sure that you're coming from a Christian point of view and that you're not, instead of being a witness, you're doing just the reverse. Cause yeah. it says, take you do the same thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So there, it's sort of the idea that take a look at your own motives. I mean, there, there's something to be said for that, 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 and, and so what I've called it here in the, in the sort of review is a ministry of admonishment. Okay. Admonishment. So what does it mean that you would be involved in admonishing somebody else. That's probably not a word that we use that use so much today. I think we just say yell at people. I think that's what we say today. But what is a ministry of admonishment? If you're going to admonish somebody, well, what does that mean? Better think before you speak. Well, there is, but what is the purpose of it? What that would be the way you do it. But what's the purpose of admonishment? Yeah, Mary Jo. Pointing out something that <laughs> yeah, or that that needs correction. Right. Or that they're steering away from this way and need to come back this way. So how many of you have ever had a performance review? So you were uh, a party to a ministry of admonishment or shall we say a victim of ministry uh, of uh, ministry of admonishment. I never had performance reviews formal until I came to Messiah. Now, I did not say I've never had performance reviews. I said formal 
performance reviews because every single church I've ever served in had for, had uh, performance reviews. But in small churches, they don't do performance reviews formally. They do it informally. You know how it works? Church attendance, voters meetings. Okay. It happens other ways. So when I came to Messiah, my first year here at the end of the year, Pastor Coleman goes, well, we're going to have these performance reviews. And I go, whoa, what? <laughs> What is that? So I'd never actually had that before, and we actually have done that now. He does that with all the staff. Presumably somebody's doing it with him. I, I would trust that. But uh, yeah, yeah, what goes around comes around. But, uh, but it's always handled in a very professional way, and it's something that's really, it's really wonderful when it's done well, okay? And when it's done in an evangelical way. It can certainly be done in a way that can be coercive and can be, uh, you know, we put your, our thumb on you and then you do what I say. That, that in what, that in the way it, it goes. But that's a ministry of admonishment, okay? And so when you are involved in that, then how it's done makes a ton of difference, right? If you, and maybe any of you have been in, in situations where the admonishment was handled in a very legalistic or a very law-oriented way, not in a teaching way. Uh, if you have ever uh, parented somebody, you did the ministry of admonishment. If you've ever been a teacher, how many teachers do we have? Any educators? Yes. You were in a ministry of admonishment. Yeah. Just for the congregation to know, the, the responsibility for uh, giving a performance review to the pastor is, is in the, the, the president and the head elder are responsible for doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we've always wondered is who's doing the performance view, uh, review of the congregation. That's what we've always, <laughs> we've always wondered about that. Now, how is that being done? Hmm, that might just be God. Could just be God. Yeah, could be. Yeah, Sandy. It's, um, you don't need to, you know, do performance reviews on us because we're here. But the people that aren't here that need <laughs> I have no comment to make about that. Yeah. Well, and that's just, uh, that is kind of an ongoing thing. You know, the Bible talks about the idea that we would encourage and ad admonish one another not to be absent from worship. In the book of Hebrews talks about that, you know, that and, and apparently so church attendance was an issue even back in uh, back in the uh, in the in the days of the early church. But again, so so judging is is to some degree involved in that ministry of admonishment. But the but the deal is, is that what you're not doing is judging somebody's heart. You're not judging somebody's motives. You're not judging their, their spirituality in terms of what's in here because nobody can look in your heart and see that. Jesus is the only one that can do that. What we do uh, look at is behavior, right? We do look at the outward stuff that people do and that certainly that we do. And that's what, uh, that's what that's all about. So the point being how we do it, you know, if you're going to be heavy handed with other people and how you do that sort of thing, then you have to have a thick enough skin to handle it when it comes back to you. And that's the caution. OK. Uh, and so he says, you know, make sure that you look in the mirror. You judge, you look at your own motives. Right. Uh, prior to doing that. And there's some wisdom in the idea of picking your battles. Right. 
I mean, sometimes we get a little bit OCD about stuff, and the next thing you know, we're, we're hammering every single little thing. And after a while, if you do that, people's eyes glaze over. Because it's like, I mean, everything is a priority then, right? And I would sort of argue that you kind of have to pick your battles. Yeah, Bob. Uh, Micah 6 8, God tells us what to do. God tells us what to do in Micah 6 8. Uh, oh, man. God has, uh, uh, he has shown you, oh, man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. Yeah. That's pretty, uh, that's pretty good. We should put that on my performance review and then we'll, <laughs> I'll remember that verse and then I'll say, hey, what about that verse? All right. And then uh, what's the last one? Don't admonish while you are angry. Why? You see the wrong thing. Well, that, yes. Why else? Why else? Because the only thing the other person will hear is your anger. And if, you're, if they're like me, they'll shut down, and then they won't hear anything. Okay? When I was in, uh, I played uh, high school, well, uh, junior high, high school, college, and seminary uh, basketball. And I've, so I've had all kinds of, um, Pastor Coleman and I both have, we've had all kinds of coaches who have had different styles of coaching. And so some of the coaches that I've had were really, they were so that the, the knowledge that they had of the game and the way that they, they coached and wanted us to do things. But the fact that they yelled, I probably didn't hear half of what was said. And if you're around a yeller all the time, what happens is, is that you become so fearful of making a mistake because you know they're going to yell, you end up wait, making way more mistakes. You don't play in a natural way. So the best coaches I remember were the ones that taught. They'd pull you aside and they would teach and they could do it without yelling. They could do it in a, in a fervent way and certainly in a firm way. And if you didn't do what they said, they would just, you know, put you on the bench. That was a nice little ministry of admonishment right there. But they would do that in a way that, that you would respect them. And in fact, you would, as a player, you would literally do anything for them. And so that's, uh, that's one of the things I learned with respect to admonishing is that um, if you're angry, like at a high level anger, like you're really steamed up, the best thing to do is go cool off and then come back and teach. Then come back and talk. Yeah. That anger moment may be more of a spontaneous thing that just is a personal thing with that person who's doing the admonishment and not be representative of the total good that that person offers in so many other ways that are yeah. important. Yeah. And you always want to have the big picture. Okay. But when you're in the moment with that person, I would sort of argue that Okay, I can get a little thicker skin and handle it, and I have done that. But the memories that I have of that coach and the style of coaching ha has been enough to say to me, that's not how I'm going to do it. That's not going to work for me. Okay? And I, I realize everybody's kind of wired a little differently, and some people kind of always roll at a higher intensity anyway. It doesn't take that much to go to a 10 if you're at a 7, you know. But... Uh, um, that's still something to be aware of when we're doing this uh, ministry of admonishment. Okay, anything else on that? So this is all nice. I know they already knew all this because you had told them that, right, on, uh, on uh, last Sunday. Okay, so let's get into verses 13 and 14 then. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. 
For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And what? Only a few. Yeah, find it. All right. So you kind of see some, some words that kind of go together, right? Narrow, small, life, few. Do you see how he kind of, kind of lays that out? And then wide, broad, destruction, and many. So the point here is that life is full of what? Choices. Yeah, we're making choices every single day. And that choices can have eternal consequences. All right. There ought to be, I think, a, a little a little warning flag, a little voice in, he- in our minds that goes off when we hear the phrase, well, everybody's doing it, right? How many of you tried to use that, um, that phrase when you were younger, trying to convince someone who had already said to you, no, you can't go to the party or, or you're wearing that, you know, or whatever it was that they would say? How many of you tried that? All of us have tried that. Some of you haven't. Some of you are still waiting to try that, I can see. Yeah. Okay. All right. So people today, though, seem to be very, very cued in on the idea that if something is quick and easy and fun, then we ought to do it. That just seems to be a uh, kind of a kind of a what a mantra or something that people are living by and and the the reality is is that this is nothing new in the human race. This is nothing new in fact, when someone says no don 't do that, then the instinct in humans is to what <coughs> i i 'm going to do it, and maybe I can do it without you knowing right okay, and we can go all the way back to the garden for that one. There was only one no. Remember what the one no was? Don't eat of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, right? Don't do that. And so then they immediately began to plan. Well, I wonder how we can do that and figure out a way to hide it from God. So, so this is nothing new for anybody, right? Well, let's look at Deuteronomy 30. Because in Deuteronomy 30, what's happening is now Moses is at the end of his life. And he is not going to enter the promised land with the uh, children of Israel. Um, He has instead uh, been told by God that that was going to be somebody else's job. Whose job would that be? Joshua. He was going to do it. So so Moses is going to get in kind of the last word of blessing to the people. And, of course, it's God who's speaking uh, speaking through him. By the way, um, the fact that Moses did not get to go into the promised land... Was that a punishment in most of your minds? Then you don't know church work. Why would I say it that way? What was Moses feeling toward the end of his life and toward the end of his ministry? I am so done with these people, right? <laughs> so I've always looked at it more as a, you know, this was a blessing. He, he had done what he was supposed to do. What was he supposed to do? Lead the people out and then lead them for 40 years, which was like 39.5 years longer than he ever thought he was going to be doing it. Right. Because he thought initially they'd just go across the wilderness. Right. Get to the Jordan. And then across we go. And then, of course, they had a a voters meeting and they decided to uh, to vote that idea down. And uh, so then that set in motion a bunch of other stuff. And Moses was the one that had to lead them through that. So, so I think Moses had gotten to the point where he was, he had kind of had it up to here. And we get a little indication of that 
you know, he was starting to lose his temper way more often. Remember when he's, God said, speak to the rock and get the water to come out. And he did speak to the rock and he smacked it with his thing, you know. So he was a, he was a kind of a high burn kind of person anyway, but uh, he had done his work. And good, well done, good and faithful servant kind of idea. Yeah. Well, he was actually, I always, I used to think that for a long time. The punishment? Yeah. Yeah, and then I thought, actually, he was rewarded because he got, not only was he done with them, he got to go to heaven. I know. He, that's the perfect thing, isn't it? Yes, he was rewarded. So let's see what he says at the end here. He says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's those are awesome. That's an awesome blessing that he's giving to them at the same time that he's also cautioning them. Right. He's saying, you know, don't be so quick to give in to the culture, because what was the culture that they were entering into with the Canaanite culture? That culture was all about uh, worshiping the Baal gods. And that was all about uh, hedonism and it was all about sexual immorality and it was all about sacrificing babies into the fire. And it was all about a fear-based sort of life. And that was the culture that they were, that they were going into. And he's saying, you know, remain pure to the Lord. Don't give yourselves over to, uh, to the temptations of the fact that everybody else is doing it. So a little question here. What is it about the narrow gate that results in only a few finding it. What is it about that? You ever thought about that? What is it about that? Thoughts? Any thoughts? Out loud thoughts? Yeah, Bob? Yeah, it's interesting. It, it doesn't say choosing it. It says finding it. Yes. And you cannot find the narrow gate without the Holy Spirit. As Christ said to Nicodemus, Unless you're born from above, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. That's a good point, that it's God's spirit in us that would open our eyes to see what's right in front of us. We can't yeah. choose what we can't find. Well, and the Bible talks about that idea that one of the three spiritual problems that we have by nature is that we're spiritually blind. And so if I'm spiritually blind, it's going to take the gospel of Jesus to give me what? Sight. Yeah. Sort of like the Amazing Grace uh, hymn. It, it was what brings that out. Some, oh, yeah, yeah. Carl. In our world, work seems so natural, but grace just is hard to take, take in and accept. Yeah. What is it about grace that just makes it that way? Why? You know, I mean, just maybe it's just part of our nature to think there's got to be something I can do, something I can contribute, a way I can make a difference, that, which is true, but not in terms of salvation. Yeah, why, why is it? Yeah. No free lunch. Well, and part of it is, is that the prerequisite for 
receiving grace and needing grace is that we're powerless. That's the prerequisite. Powerful people don't need it. Now, I don't mean it literally that way, but what I mean is, is that what does grace do for me? It unconditionally loves me. That means I'm not doing anything to earn it or deserve it. And I'm powerless to make myself a more lovable person in God's eyes. Well, who of us wants to admit they're powerless? How many powerless people do we have here? Well, we all should raise our hands, actually. But, but yeah, okay, we had one back there, Tom. Tom, thank you. Thank you. We're happy that you are the one powerless person here. But that's, that's what it is, right? That's what it is. And no, none of us likes that idea. None of us. An example would be, um, how many of you have ever been in the hospital? And you discovered that you're powerless there? And then was that a joyful experience for you? No, you couldn't wait to leave, right? And resume your powerful uh, position when you got out. So that, it's that idea. It's just, that's just so hard for us. It's so um, foreign to us. And to some degree, as Bob pointed out, it takes God's spirit in us to, in some sense, to convict us of our need for it. That's where the law comes in. And it convicts us of our need for it. And then as we realize our need for it, then the gospel comes in and says, here you go. Here you go. Yeah. Also Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Also Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Yeah. For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Lest anybody should boast, for we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Please don't go any further than that, though. I'll have to Google it then. I'm in trouble then. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, when you're doing verses like that, if you, if you go to some foreign country and you know this much Spanish and you use it all up in the first sentence... People assume that you know way more than you did. Yeah, I'm sorry, you had your hand up though too. Well, I think people struggle with the fact when you talk about narrow gate, that there's just one route to get us there, and it's Jesus. And yeah. I think, you know, whenever you're traveling or going somewhere, you're, oh, people are always thinking, oh, well, there's, you know, there's an easier route if I go this way or if I go that way, yeah. less traffic this way, Scenic. something like that. So yeah. they're thinking that mm. there's probably a different route. Yeah. It yeah. would be better, easier. That's a good point. In our world today, it's very offensive to say that there's only one way to salvation, and that's through Jesus. I mean, even us saying it, maybe we'll get some feedback off the podcast somehow, because, because when you say that, then what you're also saying about everybody else's path is what? It's not going to lead them to salvation. Now, some people say, well, I don't need salvation because I'm already saved. That's its own path. Okay, the, un the universalistic path is very popular today and people are kind of get all nervous and upset about the idea that, well, then how can you say that that person in a foreign country who was raised as a Hindu, how can you say that that person is going to go to hell because they don't know Jesus? Well, I, I, I don't know how I can say that. All I can say is that that's what the Bible says. But, but, but. The thing is, then, what does that put a responsibility on me to be doing? To be sharing the gospel. To be sharing the gospel. So there is still that responsibility that we have to be articulating that faith to others. But we recognize that what Jesus is saying is very true here. Is that the popular way 
the way that people say, oh, this is the least offensive way, is in fact that broad gate. And it's a hard message to say. It is really hard. I've got people in my own family that I've had uh, struggles with in terms of how do I say that? But you have to say it. And that's the hard thing. Yeah. The last day of vacation Bible school, the uh, message was we are powerless. Powerless, yeah. So all week long was leading up to that particular Um, Bible point. Yeah, that's great. And the story that went along with it, the Bible story, was when Peter and John healed the lame man. Oh, yeah. Because he was totally powerless. Yeah, that's a great. Oh, that's good. That's good. How many of you were involved in BBS this year? That's awesome. That's awesome. I looked at the video. I looked at the video of of the late service on Sunday morning. That was a wild service. That was... Wow, I thought, geez, is this like Messiah Lutheran? That was awesome. Yeah. Okay, one, any more, one more thing, and then we'll move into the next part. Yeah, Glenn. Well, the one way that I can always tell that I've gone out overboard. You've gone overboard? You, Glenn, have gone overboard? The Holy Cow. Spirit immediately lets me know it. And uh, when that happens, I know the first thing I have to do is say, gee, I'm sorry. Please forgive me, and then I've got to go to the person. Yeah. And say the same thing. So I figured that it, you were going to say that Priscilla let you know. That's what I, I thought you were going to say. Maybe the Holy Spirit is in her elbow. Maybe, maybe that's how he does that. Yeah, that could well be. All right, well, let's go to the next section then in Matthew seven fifteen to 23. Now Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So, um, Jesus at the first part of Matthew 7 said, judge not lest you be judged. Now he says, watch out for false prophets. Are you not in fact judging if you call somebody a false prophet? So is that a contradiction? See, I led you into that trap so perfectly, so perfectly. Yeah. Well, is it judging? Yes and no. You're judging what? The fruit. So what is the fruit Jesus is talking about? What's the fruit? Because he says, by their fruit, you will know. Okay, well, what would be the fruit of a prophet or a preacher or a teacher? Let's just say spiritual leader, however you want to describe that. Okay, what's the fruit? I need like somebody to say it louder so we can hear it. What is it? What's fruit? By what they say. Okay, so number one would be what are they teaching? Okay, what's the content? Well, if you're going to measure the content of a spiritual leader or teacher, what will be the standard then that you'd use to compare that to? You have to look at whatever is your foundational standard. And for us as Christians is what? Yeah, it's the Bible. It'd be the Bible. Now, we would also say that for us as Lutherans, we also have the Lutheran confessions, which are an exposition of the Bible, we would say. 
So if you want, that's part of the reason why if you compare very often what a Lutheran guy will say versus maybe, say, let's say, what, a, what a, a Baptist guy will say. There certainly are some, some, some t- tight similarities in terms of the gospel and Jesus and salvation and grace, but there might be some other differences in there that would be uh, characteristic of Baptist theology, let's say, versus Lutheran theology. Okay. You're, you're, what you're doing is you're listening with a discerning ear. You're listening with a discerning ear, which I think is hugely missing today because all the worry now that we have about fake news. So where, what did I hear just the other day? I think it was on NPR maybe, or one of the news channels. They were talking about um, that the worry that they have now with the midterm elections where people are susceptible to fake news and that that would somehow um, influence elections to go the direction that whoever is perpetrating the fake news would want it to go. Does that, am I saying that right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So why does fake news work? Okay, so what Mark says is one thing is, is that if they say it enough, and probably if they're consistent in saying the same thing over and over and over again, after a while you believe it, right? Okay, that's probably one, yeah. Two things, well, continuing that, the classic classic thing is that the bigger the lie, the easier it is to believe. Okay, say that again, the bigger the lie, the easier it is to believe, okay, very good. All right. But also, judgment belongs to the community, not to the individual. Say that again. Judgment belongs to the community, not to the individual. The individual. Wow. So can you give uh, an application of that? I mean, an uh, example of that? Well, the jury system. Oh, the jury system. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Even though I sat in on a trial, I had to testify in a trial, in fact. Boy, talk about being nervous. That was... That was like the first one ever and hopefully the last um, where the jury was swayed by the story from the other person. And the person that I was testifying in behalf of lost the case. So there's to some degree persuasion is a part of that as well. Is it not? Okay. So the problem with that view is can you design a better system? Oh, no, I'm not interested in trying to change the system. (laughs) I'm trying to survive the system to some degree. No, I mean, and the reality is, is that in some legal settings, you're not going to get justice. So then you have to figure out how to live with that. And so that's been my kind of my role in the aftermath is to walk with that individual now in the face of not getting justice. And what do you do with that? And how do you keep that from jading you for the rest of your life and that you become this bitter person who says, well, see what they did to me? So sometimes you don't get justice even in a system that is designed for that. Okay? Yeah. In the case where you don't get justice, then what do you do? You do an appeal. Uh, The second thing I wanted to say Mm -hmm. was um, sometimes with with the the community or the jury or whatever, you know, the analogies that you're using there, Their personal background has an awful lot to do with how they receive yeah. whatever that lie yeah. or thing. Yeah, is. whatever the story is. And yeah. that's why in jury cases, 
some people will go along or change their mind based upon their experience, which is you hope that the attorneys have done a really good job in weeding out yeah. who needs to be weeded out before they start to... But they don't always do that. Well, it, the whole experience was interesting for me because I was there for the part where they do that. What do they call that? It's a French word, bordai. Bordai, yeah. And so I was there for that whole part. And that was a real interesting, interesting and terrifying uh, experience for me, that whole thing. But uh, anyway, to go, so we go, back to the, do we go back to the fruit thing. See, it's part of why fake news works is because there's a lot of people who just believe stuff without checking it out. And the hard thing I think nowadays is, how do I know that even if I check it out, I'm checking it out with a reliable source? I mean, it's just, it's like, you know, boy, you could get a headache thinking about that stuff. So when it comes to spiritual stuff, though, see, we have the believable thing. And the believable thing that we have is the scriptures. That's the foundation. If you, if you take your life away from the scripture, you have no foundation. Or you might have a foundation, but as we're going to see later in the, at the end of this chapter, it's a foundation built on an unstable ground, which is what Jesus talks about. So that's why it's so critical to stay in the word, to be a, and not just to read it. I mean, it's important to read it, but to be a student of it, to be somebody that studies it and somebody that maybe has memorized some of it and somebody who, who isn't just... Like, oh, I just look at that on Sunday morning when we're in Bible class. It's that I really grapple with it and I really wrestle with it. And, and, and we struggle with it because, frankly, there are some things in the Bible that is like, oh, what the heck is that talking about? And you really have to wrestle with those things. There's not a lot of that going on in our world today because it takes time and effort and energy and work. And if you're not going to put your effort into it and your energy and your work into it, then you're just going to skim the surface of it. And skimming the surface of something works for easy things in life, but it does not work for the harder things in life. And I think that's the point that Jesus is saying here is that we, we need to work at being more discerning so that we can question things when they need to be questioned. Instead of just taking somebody's word for it in terms of, oh, I like that person. Oh, he has a great personality. Oh, he's so awesome. I'm just going to believe everything. Well, you know, it's important to say, let's sit down and talk about that because I wasn't sure what you meant and I'm not sure that I agree. And let's go into the word and see. See, that's that's one way to do that. Okay. And, and so I would encourage that. And you can do that everywhere except in this class. So that's just an awesome thing there. No, I'm teasing. All right. Well, let's, so let's go to the next page. All right. So this idea that, that false prophets can be like ferocious wolves that are dressed like what? Like innocent sheep, like sheep, uh, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. So if you look at Ezekiel 22, Ezekiel's talking about this, and this goes even back in the Old Testament, all right? He says, there is a conspiracy of Israel's princes within her like a roaring lion tearing its prey. They devour people, take treasures and precious things, and make many widows within her. Her priests do violence to my law and profane my holy things. They do not distinguish between the holy and the common, they teach that there is no difference between the unclean and the clean, and they shut their eyes to the keeping of my Sabbaths, 
so that I am profaned among them. Her officials within her are like what? Wolves tearing their prey. They shed blood and kill people to make an unjust gain. Oh boy, that's quite an indictment, is it not? Who is he indicting? The leaders, the spiritual leaders of the church of Israel. That's, what, that's who he's going after here. And he's pointing out to them that they were not doing the spiritual job of admonishing. They were not doing the spiritual job of, of sharing truth. And they weren't saying the tough word to people that you're going down this broad path to destruction. They weren't doing that. Now, any guess as to why they wouldn't be doing that? Because when they did do it, they got killed. That was the other part of Israel's history, is that the prophets that did do that, who did speak the truth, were killed. The people didn't want to hear it. So, you know, you get that sort of dynamic, right, between the spiritual leader and the spiritual follower. And if the spiritual follower says, we don't want to hear what you have to say, what, what Ezekiel and what God is saying through Ezekiel is it doesn't matter. You don't sell out to what pe- just what people want to hear. Even if your own uh, health or your own life or your own way of making a living or whatever it is, is, uh, is at stake. Pretty, uh, pretty striking, is it not? So Jesus says then, uh, back in Matthew, he says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So this is kind of an interesting little, uh, little deal here, is there were wandering prophets and preachers that were a problem in the days of the early church. So around 100 AD, there was a uh, collection of writings that was uh, put out called the Didache, which was written to give churches guidance on what does a false prophet look like? Because, you know, you can, you can also go in the Bible and if the prophet would say the right words, well, maybe he was still a false prophet, but he's just saying the right words. And people go, oh, it must be the good thing because he's saying the right words. So here's some of the things that practical advice that they gave was that if the guy stayed in the region for more than one day and asked for money, he was a false prophet. <laughs> Oh, I know I'm looking at this going, uh-oh, 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 all right. Uh, if he had no trade and he would come into the area and insisted on living off of people's generosity, he was a false prophet, okay? Um, if he demonstrated poor judgment or character, and then if he was a trafficker in Christ, Wow, I thought, man, that's an amazing, that's an amazing uh, phrase right there. Okay, so the good tree, good fruit, bad tree, bad fruit sort of thing. There was a local proverb that was often said, like root, like fruit. Okay, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, and uh, again, the idea of the false prophet was this was somebody who would look the part, but inwardly the motive was only self-interest. And so you think of some things that have to do with self-interest would be prestige. Would there be prestige in being a prophet or being a preacher? Oh, yeah, everyone loves you. It's, that's one of the main things, yes, all right? Uh, and then certainly lining one's pocket. So here's a little, uh, little excerpt that I found. I was doing a historical study of my wife's church in Illinois, Dundee, Illinois, where she, uh, where she grew up. They put out this little booklet about, you know, like the 150 years of the church's history. 
And uh, I was reading through it. And what I read was, was that back in the 1800s, when the church had first started, it started because German settlers came over from Germany and they settled right uh, all, all along the areas where all these rivers are. So the Fox River runs right through uh, uh, Dundee, Illinois, and uh, the l- ground was fertile and all those kinds of things. So they, so they uh, built this church. Well, then what happened was this, this German guy came from Germany and he presented a piece of paper that said, I've been approved by the whoever the approval thing, maybe he just made up in his backyard or something. Anyway, it said, I've been approved and I'm your, I'm your new pastor. And basically what he did was he took all their money. Yeah. And apparently this was the common practice in, in those days. And it was a dangerous thing because not only did they take, he take their money, but he was preaching a gospel that wasn't consistent with the gospel of the scriptures. Now you think, well, why didn't they call him on that? Why didn't they catch him on that? Well, part of it was, was that they were not as educated as he was. He was more educated. And so when you have a highly educated clergy and a lowly uh, educated uh, 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 congregation, then you could get that, right? Because he could present something as being uh, the truth of the scriptures and and Lutheran doctrine. And it turned out uh, not to be that way. So beloved life principle number 43 is you may have to look deeper than the surface to discover the true motives of a religious leader. Okay, so when I submit my bill for the next uh, airplane that I want to get to the treasury of the church, then that might be a little indication that there might be something else going on with your associate pastor. Okay, all right, so that would be maybe an example of that. Okay, so Jesus says, then not everyone who says to me, verse 21, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name, drive out demons and in your name, perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Could a person do all the right things in ministry, but not know Jesus? Yes. Yes. How would they do the miracles then? How would they drive out demons? Can the devil, can the devil, does the devil have power today to do stuff? Oh yeah. We believe that. I mean, uh, if you don't believe it, okay, that's a different issue. But yeah, the devil's a powerful, a powerful being. So a person could do all those spectacular things and good heavens, they would be spectacular, right? But just because you're able to do those things doesn't mean that in here, faith is present. And so see, that's a, it's, it's kind of a warning, I suppose, but it's also kind of a comforting thing that I think sometimes we look at the people that can do that and we go, oh, wow, there's, there's the real thing. Look what they can do. Look at the difference they make. Look at the uh, impact that they make. Look at how many people's lives are affected in a wonderful way by what they can do. And we compare ourselves to that and we say, God, what do I do? 
and we feel bad about our own life and we feel bad about our own spirituality. Maybe even we feel bad about the idea that maybe I'm not as great a Christian as him because look at all the good that he does, right? And yet at the end, when the moment of judgment comes, that guy is saying, Lord, look at all the stuff I did. And that was all for you. I did all the right things all the right way, right? It was all for you. And Jesus says, but there was no faith. I didn't know you. To some degree, getting into heaven is based on who knows you. <laughs> right? And that's the good news. Because who knows you knows you. Even all the crummy stuff. All the stuff that you didn't want anybody else to know about, he knew. And yet, what did he say? Oh, I love you. Oh, come on in. I forgive you. That's, oh, that's water under the bridge. And we're remembering it, of course. But he doesn't. And that's the beauty of what salvation and heaven is. So I never knew you. Boy, that's startling, isn't it? That's striking. Okay, so now we go to the end. We finish. So now Jesus finishes up, and he finishes it up with that great word, therefore, right? We love that word, don't we, right? Because therefore means what I'm about to say is based on everything else I just said before, right? Therefore. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, when remember that that's a both and, right, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, the rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Two houses. Two scenarios of building, right? What do they have in common? What do they have in common? They both have storms, right? It's not like if you build your house on the rock, you will never have a storm. You will never have wind. You will never have rain. You will never have leaky pipes. You'll never have drips coming from the roof. You'll never have what we had two weeks ago at our house, a slab leak. You will never have 24 cubic feet of red dirt in your family room. <laughs> now, you know, it doesn't matter which house you have. You're going to have that stuff happen, right? Okay. Somebody, who was it in the room, John, who suggested that we should plant a garden inside I, I, our room? Yes, John. John, that was such a comforting thought. <laughs> we felt loved and your empathy was awesome in that moment. Yeah. We still laugh about that, but all the dirt's gone, so we can't plant anything anymore in there. All right. Well, the other, the other thing that yeah. the, the other thing those two houses had in common yeah. is they had a choice. They had a choice. Now, I, okay, what do you mean by that? Which house did they want? <coughs> did they want one built on the sand or did they want one built on the rock? Oh, okay. Now here he, but he's talking here about there's two builders and there's two houses and yeah, it would be sort of, okay, which house do you want to live in? That might be a, that would be a, 
another part to that. Very good. You just added to the parable. That's awesome. Way to go. One of the things that uh, we often get a little confused about is that in the Middle East where they have a lot of sand, you'd think that, you know, well, how do they do that? How do you build your house on a rock if you don't like if you have sand everywhere? But I read that what they do there is they dig down into the sand until they find the rock. And then they put their foundation, or maybe it's pillars or however they do it, they put pillars on the rock and into the rock. And then that way, it doesn't matter if the sands are shifting or not, which they always would be in the wind. So that was a little detail that I did not know, but uh, discovered that. So the point that Jesus is making is the question, what grounds you? See, the issue is not the foundation. The issue is what is the foundation built on? Because everybody has a foundation. Anybody have foundation problems around here? Shifting. I mean, you think about it, it's bad enough that the ground would shift, but then your foundation shifts. And you think, if anything shouldn't shift, the foundation shouldn't shift. Well, yeah, but that's what, that's, that's, the issue's not the foundation. The issue is what's the foundation sitting on or sitting in, Okay. So the beloved life principle number four, uh, 44 is your baptism secured your identity as God's beloved, no matter what. That's the rock. That's the rock. You can have storms. You can have foundation problems. You can have slab leaks. You can have all kinds of stuff that just, you know, drive you crazy. And guess what? You're still God's beloved. Nothing changes that. And that becomes the thing that we hold on to even when all the other stuff is coming apart. And when all the other stuff is like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't have to worry about the fact that Jesus knows me. He loves me. He called me his beloved. And my baptism is the touchstone that I go back to every single day. And for sure, when all these things happen like this, that's what we lean on. Okay. So one thing to think about is what winds are blowing against your house these days. And there's a bunch. Some of the wind is happening inside the house. It isn't just happening on the outside of the house, right? It goes on everywhere. And that we go back to the thing that we put our foundation on. So at the very end, we're told that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. A little indictment there of the teachers of the law. And one can only suspect, or I would suspect there, that Jesus, they sensed in him that this was the real deal. And when you think about it in terms of his ministry, this is early in his ministry. It isn't like he's just done a ton of things, right? A ton of miracles and raising people from the dead and feeding 5,000 all that, all that kind of came later. But at this point, they're hearing from him the word and the fact that he himself is the word, right, would give that sense of authenticity, that sense of, of, uh, of genuineness. All right. Well, guess what? We finished. With five minutes to spare. Look at that right there on the clock. Awesome. Yeah, Gordon. I think that we should be grateful for the fact that when, uh, like in Deuteronomy, when 
when Moses said, I'm tired of these people and what they've been doing, that God didn't say, you know, I am too. I'm going to go to a different universe. Yeah, that's a good point where God didn't say, you guys just go back to Egypt, right? Yeah, God doesn't give up on us. And that's really the good news. That's a great, great final point here. All right, well, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for... Uh, the way that you have led us and guide us through this study of the Sermon on the Mount. What a rich, uh, just what a rich collection of, of teachings and, and things that Jesus had to say, such great wisdom. But as is always the case, dear Lord, sometimes we take all the things that we learn and it becomes kind of just head knowledge. It becomes insights and it becomes stuff that we say, oh, okay, now I know more than I did before. Help us to, to say no to that temptation, Lord, and instead to, to let it, it sort of fill our lives in such a way that we're going to put it to practice, that we're really going to let it challenge us in our day-to-day walk with you. Uh, whatever the, the week will hold for us, dear Lord, in the coming week is that walk. And so I would simply pray that you watch over us and be with us and that uh, you give us opportunity to make the most of the doors that are open in front of us. Watch over us uh, this week, dear Lord, until we're together again. And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.